Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Julie, and I'm part of the Vineyard staff team. And like Myron said, we are starting a new series today called Unstuck. So let me ask you, how many of you have ever been in a situation where you feel like there's just no way out? You don't know what you're going to do. Maybe it was five minutes. Maybe it was three days. Maybe it was months on end. Maybe you're in a situation like that right now. There are so many ways that we can feel kind of stuck in life. And I know in our family, um, we've had some of those recently. One of my kids, uh, he's in college and his program was discontinued. So he's been kind of stuck trying to figure out what do I do next. Another one of my kids lost his glasses in a lake, pretty much stuck without those glasses for a while. Uh, we had a car accident the other night. Everyone's okay, but we're, we're stuck without a vehicle. For, I mean, there's so many things that happen that can kind of get us stuck. And I know even um, as a mom, I've been privileged to be a mom for 21 years. It's been my favorite job ever. I have messed it up now and then big time. I've blown it. I'm not the world's greatest mom, but I know I'm the world's okayest mom because I got this shirt. It's proof. It says so, right? But we do. We, we blow it even when we don't want to. You know, I mean, when our, um, when our first child was born, my husband and I were living in a kind of small house. It was like a four to 500 square foot A-frame house. It was up on a hill in the woods, no neighbors, pretty isolated. And uh, it, it, we ended up having three kids in less than three and a half years. So it became very cozy very quickly. Five of us were living there. And uh, we decided during that time, we're going to build a house down the hill. So we had a little more space. And so we started working on that. And very quickly, this became a season of long days at work, followed by long nights working on this house. The family was helping us build it. And um, because I could do a lot of my job from home, I ended up having a lot of time alone with the kids and with my job and in this little house. And Donnie had long, my husband had long days of, of work and construction. And the house is kind of set up like just one big room. And so the kitchen kind of was my office, was the family room, was the bedroom at night. You can kind of get the picture. And with three kids, all day long, every day, it was pretty much just one giant playroom. You know, I mean, there were blocks here and trains there and crayons. It was like a landmine of Legos. That's very, very dangerous. If you've ever been around that, painful. You know, the, the veggie tails were big then. And so veggie tails were in a loop hour after hour on repeat. And since the only room in the house that was separate that actually had a door was the bathroom. Whenever I would go to the bathroom, I think they thought we were going on a field trip because they'd like run over and pile in and we'd all be in there excited, you know, like we're doing something special, right? And I remember this one week where the weather was horrible out and one kid was sick, another one was getting sick. The, the littlest one was still just an infant, so I was very sleep deprived. I couldn't send him out to play. And by the end of that week, I just was at the end of my patience. I mean, I felt stuck. I felt like I was going to snap. And I remember Donnie was down working on the house with his dad and his brother and his brother's father-in-law. And there were no cell phones then, and there was no landline down at the construction site. So I walked out on the porch, and of course, our front door is a sliding glass door, so the kids are like pressed up against it, you know, right behind me. And I closed the door, and I'm on the porch, and I just yelled as loud as I could, Donnie, you know, down the hill, desperation. Well, I must have sounded desperate because within a few minutes, he comes running up the hill full speed. He's like, what's wrong? Is everybody okay? And I was like, the kids are fine, but I just want to pee alone and I just need to get out, you know? And, and I just, I felt stuck and I, I loved our life, but I just, I felt stuck. And there's so many ways we can feel stuck. Some that we choose, some that we don't choose. You know, you could have a medical situation that you are just struggling with. And you're stuck. It's gotten you stuck, and you didn't choose it. You could have a financial situation. Maybe there was something that broke or a financial demand that came about, and now you're, you're stuck, and, and you didn't choose it. 
You might even have a relational rut that you're in and you're just stuck. You know, maybe even with your spouse, you just don't see eye to eye on something and you just feel stuck. You might have something at work that has gotten you stuck. And again, it's by no choice of your own, but you find yourself kind of in this rut and kind of stuck. And so we're going to be talking about all these different things through this series. But today, we're going to talk about being stuck because of choices that we make on our own. And because this is what I was assigned, this is kind of what I'm stuck with. But um, see, when we make choices in life that end up getting us stuck in a place we don't want to be, like when we have messed up, when we have blown it, when we have failed and we're stuck, it can be so easy to feel like, my gosh, I've blown my whole life. I've hurt everyone around me. And it can be so easy to feel like we will never be free from that failure. We will never get unstuck because it was our fault. And so what we're going to talk about today is that there actually is a way, even when we've gotten ourselves stuck, there is a way to find freedom after that failure. And there's a guy we read about in the Bible whose life so clearly shows us this. It's amazing. And his name is David. There's actually more written about David in the Bible than anyone else except God. There's 66 chapters dedicated to David. He's mentioned 59 times in the New Testament after he's already passed away. And so we're not going to read all of those today, but his story is an incredible read. And when you read about his first 30 years of life, it's almost unbelievable how many times David gets stuck by no choice of his own. I mean, he's wrongly accused when he's fairly young, and he ends up on the run for years because he's being hunted by King Saul. You can kind of think Hunger Games, but for real, in real life. And he's hiding in caves and strongholds, and he's just moving all the time. And during this time, King Saul gives David's wife to another man, and then David's best friend, Jonathan, dies, and he has all these situations situations that he didn't choose that have gotten him stuck. But during these years, David's response to these situations is really pretty remarkable. And we get to see that God is growing him and this heart in him that follows God and tries to honor God even when he's stuck. And he has multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but he doesn't. And then at another time, David's parents come to him and they're saying, hey, we're in trouble where we're living. And David hooks them up with one of his friends. It's this king of this place called Moab. And David, David's parents are taking care of him. He makes sure they're taking care of him they can go back safely home. And um, we see David even take care of strangers' livestock out in the middle of nowhere just because he knows it's the right thing to do. And, and, and these men start to follow David. And he, he kind of has his own little army. And some of, them, some of them are even called David's mighty men. You can read about them. It's, it's pretty cool. And there was a time that these men who just love David, they risked their lives to get him a drink of water in enemy territory because he said he was thirsty. But then David, being the, the good guy that he was, he dumps the water out and says, I won't, I won't drink this water that you risked your lives to get me. And he, he's, he's got another time where some of his guys, they, just, they, they need some time off. They, they just can't work. But he makes sure they still get paid and compensated. I mean, he, he's just this good guy. And even if you're not a Christian or, or you're not sure about the Bible, read about David. I mean, it's fascinating. His story is just, his life was just unbelievable. But what we see with David in these first 30 years is that, again, when he was stuck, not because of anything he did, he consistently chose to follow God. And he becomes known as this man of integrity, of wisdom, of compassion. He's an incredible friend. And we read in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, all those who were in distress or in debt, or discontented, so all those who were stuck, gathered around him, and he became their leader. 
And then finally, David becomes the king of Israel. And he gets off to a really good start, and things are going great. But his, his threats, his trials start to kind of calm down. And if you've been a follower of, of God for any length of time, a Christian, you might know that when life starts to get easy, when, when things become more relaxed, we can be really susceptible to temptations. We can be really susceptible to, to even having a failure. And we see that this is what happens in David's life. And so we're going to be reading in 2 Samuel, starting in verse, or chapter 11. So if you have a Bible or you have a Bible on your phone, you can turn there. But it says this, starting in 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, now Joab's his army commander, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now that might not catch your attention immediately, but that last little phrase is really important. It's kind of a big deal because a king's primary role at this time was as the military leader. He was supposed to go with his men when they went to war, not stay home and have a staycation. Like that wasn't okay. So what this is saying is David was not where he was supposed to be. And we read on. In verse 2, it says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now this woman, Uriah, uh, this woman's husband, Uriah the Hittite, he was a military guy. He was out fighting in the war for David, and we find out that they have kind of a personal relationship. And so David, this man of integrity, this wonderful friend, you would think he would say, oh, okay, that's, that's Uriah's wife, man, I'm, I'm going to go back to bed, or you know, I'm going to go hang out with my own wives, or something like that. But instead, we read this in verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her, and then she went back home. And then some time passes, and in verse 5 it says, The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now, if there had been two eyewitnesses to this event, by law they both could have been stoned to death and, and killed. And Bathsheba wouldn't be able to hide this pregnancy very long, and it clearly wouldn't be her husband's baby because he's out at war. And if David went to admit that this had happened, not only is he king and this man of integrity, but he was supposed to be at war with Uriah, so it's like doubly bad. And so Bathsheba and David are stuck. And when this all really hits David, and he realizes his sin, his failure, and his walk with God, he begins to get busy trying to get himself unstuck. And you can read it all in detail in 2 Samuel, but what happens next basically is David calls Uriah home for a leave, and he expects Uriah will go in and sleep with his wife, and then everyone will think that it's Uriah's uh, son or, or daughter, his baby. But Uriah won't go into his house. He won't go into his wife. And when David says, why aren't you going in to spend the night with your wife? Listen to what Uriah says in verse 11. He says, well, the ark and the, in, in Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my lord's men, they're camped in the open country. How could I go into my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. See, he held David in high regard. Like, he didn't want to have less integrity than, than King David. 
But David is so desperate that he tries again. So the next day, he gets Uriah drunk, sends him home, expects him to go in with Bathsheba, but again, Uriah will not go into his house. In fact, Uriah packs up and gets ready to go back to the battlefield. But David is so desperate, his plan A hasn't worked, so now he moves to his plan B. And here's what he does. In verse 14, it says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, And get this, sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And Joab follows David's command. He doesn't really know why, but he follows it. Uriah dies. He's murdered, really, in that battle. And when you read this whole story throughout, David is covering his tracks. He's making sure no one knows. He's hiding it, covering it up. And then David marries Bathsheba, and they they have a son. And then we read what is probably one of the most understated statements that I've read in the Bible. It says this in verse 27, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I mean, what happened here? How could David, this, this man who had such integrity, first of all, commit such a failure and be stuck, but then not only that, go from being a little stuck to being as stuck as somebody can possibly be? I mean, in the Bible, David is called a man after God's heart. How can somebody with that description commit such a huge series of failures, right? I mean, how did he go from being such a good guy to being a betrayer and a murderer? I mean, it's so hard to believe, but then if we stop and think about ourselves, you know, you kind of got to ask, are are we really so different? You know, I mean, I've never done what David did, but I have had plenty of failures as I've tried to follow God. One pretty significant time in my life was when I was back in in high school, actually. You know, I I was living one life over here as the Christian and talking like a Christian, looking like a Christian, acting like a Christian. I was living over here, not that way at all. And that's tricky. You know, you got to lie over here to cover up what's going on over here. And, and that's hard. And you can get yourself really stuck. And thankfully, I had a good friend who was a Christian who picked up on this and started to see this and said to me, hey, Julie, why are you living like this? Because that friend could see that I was going to dig a, di- a ditch so, whole, so deep, it was going to be really hard to get unstuck. And see, so often these situations begin like David's began. We're not where we're supposed to be. You know, like, you, you decide, well, instead of going to work today, I'm just going to go play the casino. That's going to be my job today. Or, you know, we think, you know what, I'm going to go straight home, and then we make that little side stop somewhere that we really know we shouldn't stop. Or we're engaging in a private chat or a DM that we know is not healthy at all, but we just keep doing it. Or we keep going back to that website that we wouldn't want anyone to know about. Or we hit private on our phone, browsing screen, because we don't want anyone to know where we're going to go online, so we're just going to kind of hide it. You know, and if you think online isn't a place, online is absolutely a place in today's world. In fact, online is a place where we can very easily find ourselves stuck. See, being in the wrong place sets us up to then make the wrong choice. And when we do that, we can start to try to justify it. We say, well, it's only going to be one time, or nobody will know, nobody will get hurt. But think about David. It'll only be one time. Uriah is not here. No one will know. No one will get hurt. And one thing leads to another, and then a lie, and then a cover-up. And we can, we can even allow it to begin to redefine who we are. 
I mean, how many times do you think David sat up at night and thought, what have I done? This isn't who I am. I'm becoming, this isn't who I want to be. You know, but have you ever felt, felt this way? I mean, have you ever had that time in life where you've made some choices that have landed you in a place where you just don't know how you're going to get out? You know, the road that you're on seems to only run one way, or that, that hole that you've dug really is just so deep. And you think, I don't think I'm ever going to be free from this. I'm just going to have to live with this the rest of my life. Well, here's the thing that's so amazing about David's story that's been captured in the Bible is that David becomes unstuck. He finds freedom. And the way that he found freedom is available to you and to me after a failure. And so to make this kind of simple... um, We can ask the question this way. How did David and how do you find freedom after failure? Well, we can break it down into kind of three steps or or three parts. And the first one is this, to be free after failure, name it and claim it. See, freedom can only come when you know what you need to be freed from. And there are times in life where we truly may not realize that we're kind of digging our hole or whatever, you know. I mean, sometimes someone has a really critical or judgmental mindset, and they don't even realize that they're just kind of wrecking all the relationships around them. Or, or somebody, you, you might even be influenced by coworkers, peers, teammates, and you've kind of sunk into this place where all your joking, all your humor is just really crass and really demeaning, and, but you don't even realize kind of how bad it's got. Or, you know, other times maybe it's a prejudice you have, and you didn't even know you had that prejudice until a situation brings it out. And you and and in a Christian's life in situations like this when we're not fully aware the Holy Spirit who we talked about in our last sermon series he will let you know you know he'll speak through the Bible he'll speak through prayer he'll speak through a friend who who is willing to have that hard conversation with you he'll speak through the radio whatever you'll listen to but more often when we have messed up when we have gotten ourselves stuck we know it and you, you may push it away you may try to hide it you may think like David did, time will just fix it. I'm just going to put it off. And, and when David did this, what happens? What we see is David, or, or Bathsheba, got through her whole pregnancy. So nine months, and we don't know how much longer it was. We don't know how old the baby was. But eventually, God sends a prophet named Nathan to David to confront him about this. And when that prophet, Nathan, comes, Nathan tells David this parable, this little story. And we read this in 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 12. And here's what he tells him. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now you probably picked up on the analogy here, but if you didn't, don't feel bad. David didn't either. And we read on. And it says, Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now David has some choices. He could kill Nathan and just continue the pattern and try to cover it up. He could deny it to Nathan, but that would be saying that God's a liar because there's no way Nathan would have known this if God hadn't given him this knowledge. Or David can confess it. He can name it and claim it. And we read David's response. He says this. It says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. That almost sounds kind of too simple. Like he says, I've sinned. And the Lord says, okay, you're forgiven. But here's what it's really important to realize that when we confess, when we name it and claim it, we are immediately forgiven. It's kind of unbelievable. It's kind of amazing. However, we are not promised that the consequences aren't going to continue to be carried out. In fact, Nathan goes on to list a number of consequences, tells David like ahead of time, here are a bunch of things that are going to happen as a result of this, including in verse 14 when he says, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And David and Bathsheba's son get sick, and a week later he dies. But the key here is this. David named it, he no longer tried to cover it up, and he claimed it. He didn't shift the blame. See, at first he tried to cover it up for at least nine months, but then he confessed it to Nathan, but he still could have tried to cover it up and hide it from everyone else. But when you read all of 2 Samuel, he does not. He lays it out there, and everyone knows. In fact, we know that too, because for hundreds of years, this has been captured on the pages of the number one bestseller, and we're talking about it today. He quit trying to cover it up. He named it. And he didn't shift the blame. He didn't say, well, it was Bathsheba's fault. And he didn't play the victim and say, but my childhood was so hard, or my job is just so stressful. I I didn't think it would get so out of hand. It wasn't my intention. He didn't do that. See, when you name it and claim it, you own it. And you don't shift the blame. And if there's anybody else involved in the situation, they get to answer to God for their part of what went down. Now next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of naming and claiming it. Myron's going to be talking about learning to embrace the past so that God can actually use it. So don't miss next week. We're going to go a little bit further with it. But there's one more thing I want to clarify about this idea of naming and claiming it, what's often called confession. Because in the Bible, we read about confessing your sin to God to get right with God. Like in 1 John 1, 9, you may have heard this before. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And this is absolutely true. This is what we see happen with David. But I want to clarify that the biblical meaning of confess is not the same way that we use it in our culture today. See, in our culture today, confessing pretty much means acknowledging that we did something and that's it. In my husband's job, he often has to arrest people and many times they confess to what they did. They say, yep, I did the crime. 
but then they're really quick to go, but do you know what the other guy did? Or, you know, you, you have no idea. You don't even know my situation. Or they'll say, she made me do it. Or they'll say, I did it, but I do it all over again. And this isn't the confession that the Bible is talking about when you look at the language of the Bible. See, there's a big difference between being sorry that we got caught in admitting it and being sorry that we have caused pain or a broken relationship. Big difference. And in 2 Corinthians 7, it's, it's put really clearly. It's explained. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, that worldly sorrow, the, oh, no, I got caught, just admitting it, that doesn't get you unstuck. It doesn't really do much of anything. It just eventually leads to death. But that godly sorrow, recognizing we've broken our relationship with God, when we have that kind of sorrow and it leads us to repentance, it ultimately can give us freedom. And this brings us to our second part of finding freedom after failure. To be free after failure, we need to receive the invitation to repent. Now, when you hear the word repent, if you instantly just have this image of this angry religious person just yelling, repent or burn, you know, you're, you're in good company. Because in our culture, that's kind of what we think. It's, it's got a really bad rap. We, we tend to think of repent as someone yelling and condemnation and judgment. But in the Bible, repent was actually a call to freedom. See, repenting meant to, if you're going this way, to turn around, leave the way you're going, and turn and follow God and begin to live in a new way, go in a new direction. And see, the people of God have been taught that if they're not right with God, if they're living this way, then they're on the road to hell, separation with God, and that was true. But for God's people... In David's time and all the way up to right before Jesus came on the scene, this idea of repenting had become very, very defeating. Because over time, over these years, the religious leaders had added so many rules, so many regulations to God's guidelines that it was impossible to completely repent and keep following all the rules. For them, repent was this great idea, but the reality of it, to be perfect, was impossible. They couldn't be perfect enough to be part of the perfect kingdom of God. It was just out of reach. It was just too far off for them. But when John the Baptist and then Jesus, they were cousins, comes and they begin to preach, what they start with when they start their public preaching is repent. And the people flock to them in hundreds and thousands. They were following them. And this was because John and then Jesus, they were proclaiming a new message. They weren't just preaching like the common religious leader. They weren't just saying, repent, get yourself right, here's the list of rules to follow, and I'm watching for you when you screw up again. See, their message was different. And John starts out like this. In Matthew 3, we hear that John preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then in Mark, we read that after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. See, when Jesus said repent, it was not repent because there's bad news about how far off and how far gone you are. He was saying repent because there's good news about how close the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has come to you. He was saying 
I am here and where I am, that's where my kingdom is. And he was saying, I'm inviting you to repent. In other words, just turn from whatever you're doing, from whatever direction you're going. Follow me. I know you won't be perfect, but I'm inviting you into a relationship. And even though you're not perfect, I want to be with you anyway. I want you in my kingdom. And see, when Jesus preached repentance, repentance was a gateway into the relationship with God. And the call to repent was a call to be free, to know and follow God, even in our imperfections. You know, God says, if you want to get unstuck, if you want to be free after failure, confess it, name it and claim it. But there also has to be an action in a new direction. It will require a change in behavior. But the motive isn't a list of rules. The motive is the relationship with a God who desires the very best for us in this life. When uh, Donnie and I were married um, early on, we knew that after we got married, we would still find other people attractive because it doesn't just quit happening just because you're married. And early on, Donnie heard an idea that he adopted as his own, and for almost 23 years now, he's maintained it. And what he heard, an idea that he picked up on was this. Anytime he would find another woman who was very attractive or, you know, had to interact with her or whatever, and he'd start to have those thoughts, he would take those thoughts and he'd turn them and bring those thoughts back to me and to him and to our relationship, to our home, to what we were building together, to our life, to the very thing he cherished, to the relationships he didn't want to mess up, that he didn't want to jeopardize. And here's the thing, he could have like kept our vows on a little piece of paper and been like, ooh, ooh, I'm not allowed to do that. That's, that's a rule I'm breaking right now. You know, probably would have worked. But his motive wasn't just to follow the rules he said he'd follow. His motive was, I cherish this relationship and I don't want to break it. I don't want to damage it. See, when God sent Nathan to David, this was a gift. God could have let David die God could have condemned David for what he did. God could have left David to be stuck, but he didn't. He invited David back into relationship. And it's after Nathan called David out that David writes Psalm 51 and some other psalms. You can read them this week. They talk about his confession and his repentance and the unbelievable freedom he has following. And in in verse 4, David makes this statement, against you, you only, have I sinned. See, David recognizes his relationship with God is central to his life. Yes, he's hurt other people. Yes, he's sinned against other people. But if he had kept that relationship with God right, he wouldn't have hurt anyone else. He wouldn't have sinned against anyone else. And when he realizes that he has hurt God's heart and broken their relationship, there's this huge shift in his life. And in verse 11, David says to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that word restore means to turn it back to how it used to be. He's saying, God, I want to get back to where we were. Because see, when you really begin to walk with God, it changes your perspective on this relationship. Mark uh, Erbal, he's a Christian writer, and he puts it this way. He says, repentance is less about feeling bad over behavior and more about feeling awe and delight towards God. See, repentance with God is always a call towards relationship. And over and over in the New Testament, when you read about someone repenting, it doesn't say there's condemnation. Every time it says there's rejoicing 
when someone repents. So if we want to find freedom after failure, we need to name it and claim it. We need to receive the invitation, the gift, really, to repent. But there is one more critical part. Once you've found freedom after failure, how do you go on living free after failure? That can be a really tricky part of this. And as I was working on this message, I was really wrestling with this. I mean, i got to be honest with you. I know that all this stuff is true. I've been trying to live it for years, and I've experienced that unbelievable freedom after failure. But at least for me, I know that I'm probably going to fall again. I mean, it just can be so easy. I, I resonate with, with Paul. He, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. He was an amazing follower of God. And he writes this in Romans 7. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And it goes on for a whole paragraph. It's like a tongue twister. And basically, Paul is saying, this is a real struggle. While I live on this earth, in this body, even though I'm a Christian, a follower of God, I am going to struggle to follow God. It's just going to be hard. And, and the area that I struggled with this a few years back was, um, it's almost embarrassing, but speeding and road rage. I mean, you may not look at me and think I'm, you know, a speedster or an angry driver or whatever, but I'll tell you what, when I get on a two-lane interstate and I was in that left lane, which is the passing lane, and the guy in front of me is like going only the speed limit, I would just start yelling like loudly and not nicely, you know? And I'm just like telling him what his problem is because clearly he doesn't know. And... And then I'd, you know, I'd get, I'd get a traffic light, a stoplight, and then it would turn green. And the guy would sit there, and I'd be like, come on, we all have to move. You're not busy enough. You know, I mean, just not, you know, not, not good. But then I'd get to my destination, I'd calm down, and I'd, I'd like, repent. I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. But the problem was I'd get in my car, and there'd be someone slow in front of me, you know, and, I, and it'd, ah, it'd all happen again. But, but really, I began to be convicted because I thought, this isn't how God wants me to live. Like, this isn't representative of him. And the vineyard didn't want me to have a sticker on the car. I had no, no sticker for Julie's car. You know, she can't hide those from her. But, um, you know, I've, I've, I, God and I have worked on this. So if I'm behind you, we're, we're okay. But... But really, you know, it's, it's funny how these struggles hit us, and we do, and it becomes something where, you know, when we realize we're walking with God, we don't want to break that relationship. We don't want to misrepresent him. We don't want to live out of his will and out of his best for us. But we all will struggle with what God might have us do at times, you know, and, and we can t- tend to think of Christianity like this, and sometimes we think this is easier. Just give me the rule, and I'll follow it, then I'll be good with God. But God says that's backwards. You need to follow me, and then the behaviors, they'll follow. Just get to know me. This is a relationship. And so again, the other day, I'm praying about this, and I'm saying to God, God, how do I make this mental shift on a daily basis? Like, is there, could there be just some kind of almost simple way? Because here we are in church, and we're talking about it, and it sounds good, and we're, we're going to give it a try. But God, how could I think of this? So on Monday morning, or at work, or when I'm shopping, or when I'm out with friends, I could really hang on to this. When I finally got quiet, here's what I really think God said to me. Julie, I've been God of your life for years. I've been your Savior for years, and I've been your Lord. But am I your Lord moment by moment, decision by decision, conversation by conversation? And I think he went on and he said, listen, Julie, you know, to live life is a free resident of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's really simple. Let me be Lord. 
And this is the third part of finding freedom after failure. To live a life of freedom after failure, let God be Lord. See, by definition, whoever is Lord is the one who has the influence, the power, the authority over how you live. And in Christianity, it can be easy to think of God as the creator and and the ruler of the universe. And Jesus is our savior. And we love that so much that he saved us. But does he have authority over your life? Is he the one you turn to first for guidance when you need to make a decision? Is he the one that you seek to honor and obey with your actions and your relationships and your words and how you spend your money and everything else? Is he your Lord? See, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Lord when people come to him for healing because they're submitting to his authority. And his disciples, when they are describing the relationship, they say he's their Lord. And and we even realize that Jesus' position as Lord in our life is required for salvation. In Romans 9.10, I'm sorry, 10.9, you may have heard this before, it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, but Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, when we let him be Lord, our actions will follow his direction. It does not mean we're going to get it right all the time, but it does mean we are free to trust him and to trust him that he has our absolute best interest in mind as we go through this life. And listen again to how David addresses God when he finally confesses to Nathan. He says this back in in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. See, David realizes he took God off the throne of his life and he put himself on the throne of his life. And he assumed the role of Lord of his life. See, when God was Lord of David's life, back when David was being hunted by Saul, He was stuck so many times, and he actually had multiple opportunities just to kill Saul. And his friends were like, God, kill him. You've got this chance. But David wouldn't. And when you read his story and you listen to what David says, he says, I will not kill anyone that my Lord has anointed and put in that position. He completely trusted God to take care of him, and God did take care of him unbelievably well. But then we fast forward to the part of David's life that we looked about today, and we see that David begins to assume the role of Lord in his life, and he gets stuck, and he takes matters into his own hands, tries to get himself unstuck, and he becomes more stuck and more trapped by his failure. And what's the difference between the earlier time and the later time? The only difference, one thing, who has authority over his life? Who is Lord of his life? See, we will all have areas that we struggle in. Some are, some are little, some are big, some are outward, some are very internal. Some are very significant and severe and hard, and we call those addictions. And again, we're going to talk more about all this as the series goes on. But if God could free David after all he had done by his own choice, wouldn't it be crazy to say God couldn't free us from the messes that we've gotten ourselves into? Proverbs twenty eight thirteen says this, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. They will stay stuck. But the one who confesses and renounces, repenting them, finds mercy. See, God's smallest mercy is always greater than our biggest sin or failure. And I read this post recently. I thought it was so good. Lisa Bevere, she's an author, she said, If you think you've blown God's plan for your life, rest in this. 
you, my beautiful friend, are not that powerful. See, regardless of how stuck your failure has you, freedom is available. Again, it doesn't mean there won't be consequences. I mean, some of us have engaged in in habits that honestly have damaged parts of our bodies that as long as we live on this earth, they're just not going to be repaired. You know, for some of us, the, the divorce has happened or the person who we had that unreconciled difference with, they've passed away and it's very, very hard when we're living out those consequences. But when you let God be Lord, what he offers is not only forgiveness and salvation, but sincerely true freedom, a way to live life free moving forward and to avoid doing more of what you did before that got you stuck in your other relationships, in your other events in life. But I say let God be Lord because we need to understand this is a choice. This God, he's not a pushy God. He makes it all available to us, and then we have to choose. We get to choose. Joshua, who um, is a guy in the Old Testament um, who wrote some stuff, he, he puts it this way. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. In other words, you're, you're going to let someone have authority over your life. And he goes on and he says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's a choice. And so I want to wrap up by reading just a little part of another psalm that David wrote that came out of his relationship with God. See, the God who had freed him didn't hold it over his head for the rest of his life. That God, as soon as David repented and he was freed and and, and he was Lord again of David's life... He came alongside David, and he loved him and walked with him the rest of his life and then right into heaven. And David writes this about this God who he knows in such a special way from this freedom. He writes, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our our failures, our sins from us. This is the God who invites you to be free. He says, just name it and claim it. Receive the invitation to repent and let me be Lord. Let's pray. Father God, Lord God, what an unbelievable gift that you have made a way for us to know you, to have a relationship with you. God, that you're willing to be the Lord of our lives. This, the God of the universe who knows everything, who knows the very best for us. God, thank you for that. And God, I pray that for those of us who have failures that we're struggling with, even today, that we're hanging on to, God, I pray that you would just call to us in a very personal way. God, that you would speak to our heart, to our mind, to our situation. And God, would you speak the truth to every person that you love them. Your desire is for them to be free. And God, I thank you that you give that to us and you don't hold back. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.